Hi, I'm Simon Drew, and you're listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes of the show, as well as articles and information about my one-on-one alignment coaching, then you can head to my website. It's simonjedrew.com. If you do have the means to support the show, then I'd love to see you in my Patreon community. Just go to patreon.com forward slash simonjedrew, where you'll also get access to over 240 episodes recorded before 2020. But for now, enjoy the show. Hey everyone, thank you so much for spending your time here listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast. And today you're in for a real treat. This is one of the most fascinating conversations I've had uh, in my life. Uh, and I'm so grateful that we had this guest on today. None other than Brian Murescu. Now, Brian was recently on the Joe Rogan podcast uh, and I listened to his interview because I've been very, very fascinated in the very topic uh, that he has spent, uh, I believe, 10 to 12 years of his life dedicated to studying. And, uh, and, and the book that he's recently released is called The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Brian, uh, and then I will tell you a little bit about why this interview is, uh, is so fascinating to me and, and so important to me. And then we'll dive straight in. So, Brian Murarescu graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Brown University with a degree in Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit. As an alumni of Georgetown Law and a member of the New York Bar, uh, he has been practicing law internationally uh, for 15 years. He lives outside Washington, D.C. with his wife and two daughters. Uh, In 2016, Murarescu became the founding executive director of Doctors for Cannabis Regulation. Their work has been featured on CNN and ESPN, as well as the Washington Post and San Francisco Chronicle. In arbitration with the NFL in 2018, he represented the first professional athlete in the United States to seek a therapeutic use exemption for cannabis. So the immortality key is actually his debut book, and to talk about what this book is actually about is is actually a really difficult uh, task to do briefly because it covers so much ground, which is so fascinating. But essentially, he, he goes on this journey discovering uh, the psychedelic, hallucinogenic, and mystic roots of Western culture and Christianity. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and the reason why this conversation has been so uh, particularly important for me uh, and for this podcast as well, is because uh, what uh, Brian does with this book is he actually answers a lot of the uh, kind of suspicions that I've had as I've dived back into these philosophies and into my own creative pursuits as a musician and, and studying uh, the, the the roots of, uh, you know, poetry and and arts and and philosophy and all of this sort of stuff and and you guys will know because you've been listening to the podcast this year that I've been very fascinated with uh, the roots between uh, Christianity and the early philosophers um, of Greece and Rome and so you know this book that he's written the Immortality Key answers a lot of those questions as well and uh, and possibly even more importantly for the context of this podcast. Uh, there are some real uh, changes that we need to make in our perceptions about what Stoicism is and what its roots are. 
and where these kinds of ideas came from and where they are founded. Uh, you know, we even talk a little bit about the pre-Socratic philosophers uh, who who had these mystic origins, who really led to so much of of the the thought that we that we know and love today. Uh, and so, you know, he mentions Marcus Aurelius, we mentioned Cicero, we mentioned Heraclitus, we mentioned Socrates, uh, Plato. Uh, they're all messed up in this big scandal. So, <laughs> so I, I'm so excited for you guys to listen to this. I think this is just going to be such a fascinating dive for any of you who are uh, really interested in the in the ancient Greek philosophies, uh, particularly Stoicism. And uh, And so without any further ado... Uh, and with a high recommendation that you go and buy his book, The Immortality Key, the link will be in the show note. Uh, I present to you this interview with Brian Murescu. Okay, so Brian, firstly, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Um, you know, the research that you've done, uh, is just unbelievable. Uh, and, and, you know, this book, uh, man, it's a journey, you know, it's a massive journey for anybody who's interested in philosophy or, uh, theology, Christianity, other religions, like you, you, witchcraft, you talk about the lot, you know, when I, when I was listening to this book, I have to tell you, uh, you know, the whole way through, I'm finding myself saying, I hope he talks about this. And then you talk about that. I hope he talks about witches. And then you talk about witches. I hope he talks about Christian. Yeah, and you just go through this, this uh, giant list of, of uh, cultures and religions and philosophies and, and practices that were all rooted in these mystic traditions. And I guess in order to start the interview off today, I actually wanted to start in a bit of a strange way. Um, I wanted to read you a quote from a Disney movie that came out last year. I think Disney is like the biggest proprietor advocate and <laughs> yeah, and teller of these mystic stories, right? Um, I watch a lot of it. I have two daughters. I watch a lot of it. <laughs> so you know, you know how uh, uh, how frequent the influences of of these hallucinogenic experiences are in these movies. So there was a quote that I heard in the movie Onward last year, which I actually think perfectly depicts what you've done with this uh, with this book. And the quote goes like this. It says, long ago, the world was full of wonder. It was adventurous, exciting. And best of all, there was magic. And that magic helped all in need. But it wasn't easy to master. And so the world found a simpler way to get by. Over time, the magic faded away. And, you know, I think that the story that you're telling in this book is the story of that magic fading away out of our society to the point now where it's taboo to even talk about it. So after that long spiel, thank you so much for writing the book. Please tell me more and my audience more about what the book is and we'll dive straight in. Sure. I, I couldn't give a better opener than that. that. That's fantastic. I think that the magic has faded. The magic and, and the mysticism of antiquity has certainly faded. And I want to be clear from the very beginning that I think drugs are just one component of that magic um, and not even the most important. Which is, which is strange after writing a whole, a whole book about psychedelics. But the name of my book is The Immortality Key. You can see over my shoulder there in very tiny font. Uh, the Immortality <laughs> Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. And I, I call it this religion with no name uh, because to me it seems to be a secret doctrine that, uh, that survives across time and space 
from prehistory all the way through uh, the Stone Age uh, into the Bronze Age and classical antiquity, which is what I, I was studying you know, as a teenager and an undergraduate, uh, right into the, the roots of Christianity itself. And then it, it takes a detour from there to the 20th century. But when I look back at history, I see visionary experiences. I see things that are difficult to explain. I think all religions are based on some kind of visionary experience. You know, Moses and the burning bush, Paul on the road to Damascus, the prophet Muhammad and the visitations with the angel Gabriel. I mean, the whole notion of revelation is uh, fascinating if you think about it, because it doesn't really happen every day to everyday people. Except when you look back in the past, it, it's saints and mystics having these extraordinary experiences. And I was always fascinated by that. Uh, and so I use drugs as, as a lens to investigate these mystical experiences and find out uh, how they could have facilitated these visionary journeys in antiquity. And much more importantly, even though it's a whole book about history, what does it mean for today? Uh, you know, I start the book by looking at these psychedelic experiments at Hopkins and NYU. I end the book talking about the same thing. And on Rogan and elsewhere, you heard me prophesy about the next 10 years. Uh, my, you know, a lot of my professional and personal interest really is seeing what happens to the study of psychedelics uh, in this clinical setting at first, but then you know, for the betterment of well people is the way some folks refer to it in 10 years time. At, at very regulated, licensed retreat centers where I think this, uh, this visionary experience is about to become available to a lot of people. And uh, it's gonna happen anyway. So I'd rather educate people about the, the very long tradition here than just start from scratch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that that's the kind of journey that you're on because, you know, like, when, when you learn more about these sorts of experiences, uh, what happens is you go out into culture and you see poetry and music and movies and, uh, you know, religions and these stories that we tell and you think, wow, there's a lot of similarities between what they're talking about with psychedelic experience, hallucinogenic experiences. And like you just said, you know, Moses and the burning bush. And uh, I just, I really appreciate that you're, you're not only on the journey of uh, bringing these sorts of experiences to people in the way that you are through history uh, and an awareness about them, but, um, but you, you can see that it's going to happen. You can see that things are coming and that they are going to be widely available. So we might as well be highly educated on what they were used for in the past, as opposed to just going into them as if they're a party drug or as if they're just something to have because it's a fun time. Um, and, and I guess, you know, when I was reading your book, you know, since the start of the year, uh, you know, I've been really diving into ancient philosophy, into even theology, and I've been thinking, um, you know, man, like I've been reading books like the psychedelic gospels, you know, learning about uh, the roots of Christianity uh, in these hallucinogenic experiences. But what really stuck out to me when you were having your interview with Joe Rogan was you brought Marcus Aurelius into the deal. And, you know, Marcus Aurelius is one of the three key figures of, of Stoic philosophy, this philosophy that has a reputation for being very, you know, hard down the line, very rational, very reasonable, uh, you know, 
there's this there's this idea about stoicism you know the classic colloquial use of just being this hard-nosed person and then we look at marcus aurelius who you know had his own personal physician who i'd love you to talk about and and then cicero talked about these experiences another famous stoic so tell me about the ancient uh, philosophers um, and as many as you like and their influence uh, of, of these, uh, I guess, these mystic experiences with hallucinogens. Right. So a lot of these philosophical schools, which I think is common sense, were not mutually exclusive, mm. as you can probably imagine. And I make the same argument about early Christianity, too, uh, and I, which I call paleo-Christianity, which, which we'll mm. save for later in the conversation. But when it comes to the Greeks... Uh, there are a panoply of schools out there. So you mentioned Stoicism as one. You know, Marcus Aurelius, uh, Stoic though he was, and I love his meditations, and I read them often, and I find them very comforting, the equipoise that he strikes in life, uh, the very kind of Eastern sense of non-attachment I love about Stoicism. Mm. Uh, you know, Marcus Aurelius also saved the mysteries, uh, quite literally. You know, when the barbarian Kostabox came through Eleusis in the second century AD, it was Marcus Aurelius, the philosopher, who rebuilt the sanctuary to Roman standards and preserved uh, what had been there, we think, since at least 1500 BC. So the mysteries of Eleusis survive from around 1500 BC to the fourth century AD, when it's obliterated under the Christianized Roman Empire. And in the well, toward the end there, you have Marcus Aurelius who we think actually is the only lay person to have entered the Anakturan, which is that holy of holies inside Demeter's temple. And you mentioned Cicero a few centuries before Marcus Aurelius. What does he say about Eleusis? He calls it the, the most exceptional and divine thing that Athens ever produced. Now think about that. And I mentioned this to, to Joe too, I think. When you think about ancient Greece, what do you think about? You think about the obvious things like democracy and the arts and the sciences and philosophy and the very concept of a university. Uh, by the way, things that the Greeks culled together from many different influences, from North Africa and the Near East uh, to elsewhere. But it comes to us through the Greeks. And in addition to all those things, they also had their mystery schools separate from philosophy, I would say. You know, these mystery schools like Eleusis were these secret initiatic traditions. Um, and I think it's hard to talk about them or teach about them because we don't know that much about them. I mean, I quoted you uh, Cicero, and I could quote you mm -hmm. Plato uh, a couple centuries before him, who talks about this blessed sight and vision. And Pindar also talks about seeing something, as does Sophocles, almost universally, these, these initiates talked about a vision. And for the longest time, we didn't know what the heck it was. And I became obsessed with this 1978 book by Wasson, Hoffman, and Ruck, who claimed it was an ergotized beer, essentially, that provoked these visions. Uh, but we simply didn't know for the longest time. Uh, and I think it's hard to teach about this stuff just because the, there's such a dearth of material, which when you hear about the best kept secret in history, which is what the great uh, religious scholar, Houston Smith, uh, the, the phrase that he used to refer to the sacrament at Eleusis, I mean, you know, it kind of gets, un gets under your skin. And so mm -hmm. I'd heard about it in high school, became more obsessed in college, and then all through my 20s and 30s, couldn't get rid of it until I wrote this book. And I'm hoping that it not only sheds light on the mysteries, but, uh, you know, the Greek philosophical tradition 
more broadly, uh, and as a fan of Stoicism, I think you'd appreciate the influence of, the, of these Greek schools of thought on Christianity. I think that that's mm. where like my genuine interest is as, as someone who went to 13 years of Catholic school. Uh, yeah. I'm just fascinated by the Greek roots of this faith. And I love this conversation, man. Yeah, well, you, you know, me too, because, you know, everything that you're talking about there, it's, it's, it's almost like this book brings all of these suspicions that I've had over the past couple of years into play, right? You know, uh, I, I remember I remember recently um, somebody joined my Facebook group and one of the answers to their questions was, you know, I'm excited to join uh, or I'm excited to learn more about a, a godless philosophy. And I thought about that, you know, because the past, you know, year and a half, I've had a transition of my research into these philosophies. I used to be on the very practical end of it, uh, thinking that more along the lines of, what I'm sure we'll talk about soon uh, of the traditional Western idea of, you know, rationality, reason, um, at what we now think of when we think of those terms. Um, but then when I go back and I read Seneca and I read Marcus Aurelius, I read Epictetus, I read Socrates, I read, I, I, I realize all of these people were talking about God in some way or another. All of these people were talking about the soul all of them were talking about very mysterious things that we now today don't, I guess it's, it's, it's kind of strange or uncomfortable uh, weirdly to talk about. Um, and then, you know, you just drop this, okay, well, Marcus Aurelius went through these experiences as well. And he had his own personal physician who was, uh, tell me more about Ga Galen. Is it uh, Marcus Aurelius's yeah. physician? Tell me more about this person and, and what you're, his you're role was with in Galen. <laughs> Yeah. You don't get many Galen questions. Yeah. <laughs> Galen was, yeah, he was the personal physician to Marcus Aurelius. Uh, I, I, I consider him kind of a successor to Dioscorides, uh, someone else who wrote, who wrote in Greek. Uh, so Dioscorides writes the Materia Medica in the first century AD. At the same time, the Gospels are being written. And, uh, you know, I elsewhere have mentioned his wine recipes that you find in there, recipes for spiking wine with all kinds of plants and herbs and toxins. Uh, and then you have Galen, who comes a bit later uh, in the second century. And the thing about Galen, uh, let me cut to the chase. I mean, he's, he's also interested in drugs. Uh, I mean, pretty profoundly interested in drugs. Uh, I, I would mm. say even, even more encyclopedic than Dioscorides, which, which is saying a lot. The thing about Galen is that he's, he was largely untranslated. There are 22 volumes of the Kuhn edition of Galen, which have yet to be translated into English. Um, that's a lot of Greek and a lot of knowledge of the ancient world that has been lost, not just on scholars, but on, on people like us. And so I myself can't tell you <laughs> all the different compound and simple mixtures Galen was talking about. And he writes about deriving toxins from animal poisons, uh, both for therapeutic medicinal effect and, uh, and also for, for, uh, for religious purposes. Uh, it, it's just a fascinating corpus that really speaks to the blind spot that we have mm. today about ancient pharmacology. Uh, which I think is profoundly interesting because I feel like there are lessons to be learned there that we still haven't learned. This, this sacred pharmacology of the West. Uh, and I will uh, share with you without uh, putting uh, too much detail to it, uh, that I, I mentioned several archaeochemists that I was in touch with um, uh, throughout the research and writing of the book. One of them is Andrew Coe. Uh, 
at MIT. And I mentioned him several times uh, to Joe Rogan because everything Andrew Coe is doing is extraordinarily important. Uh, he's, he's at MIT and he has this, this program called the Open Archem, uh, uh, sort of an online open source database where he does all the great science of archaeochemistry, but because he has a classics background and he knows Galen and Dioscorides, he's looking into the ethnobotanical written evidence from antiquity, specifically the Greco-Roman world, uh, which is really, you don't find many programs in ancient pharmacology at the leading universities uh, here or in Europe or elsewhere. Mm. Uh, so I just think it's this understudied part of the past. Uh, Galen is a giant piece of that missing puzzle and uh, you know, it takes a really interesting lens onto this material to try to uncrack it. It's so difficult to read Galen. You need to know everything from biology to pharmacology uh, to uh, you know, uh, basic ethnobotany to be mm. able to understand it. Uh, so it's, just, it's, it's one of those real clues about the ancient past where we're just beginning to understand it. Mm. And you need to know it in two languages. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's At least. insane, insane, right? Like that's, have you ever considered that you would uh, pair up with an ethnobiologist and, and, and translate those works? I mean, yeah, if, if I Am had I foretelling thousand... a future project here, or... <laughs> <laughs> if I had a thousand years to live, I got a lot of projects happening right now. If I had a thousand years, I, I would do it. You know, a Andrew Coe is very much interested specifically mm. uh, in Dioscorides. I, th I think I would add Galen to that to that list as well. These th these things need to be um, uh, they, they need to be centralized. They need to be translated. They need, they need to be made available to people in all mm. languages. And experts from all these different disciplines need to dive into their Dioscorides and Galen to figure out what was going on. We really can't say much about ancient pharmacology without breaching those texts mm. and and others and and others. Yeah. The ethnobotanical written evidence is very understudied and very important. And, you know, what, what, what I find so interesting is in your book, uh, I, I get a sense from the way that you write and the story that you're telling, I get this strong sense. Maybe it's just because if I was in your shoes, I would feel this way. But do you feel like you've only just scratched the tip of the iceberg uh, when, when researching this? Like you've done, what, 10 years, I understand, of, of hardcore research, traveling around the world, trying to get this book together. But do you feel like there's just so much more that we don't yet? I mean, you went into the Vatican archives. I don't know how long you had in there, but you could spend a whole lifetime in there. Like, how much more do you think there is to, to get out of this sort of stuff? I couldn't, I couldn't say it better. You could, you could spend several lifetimes. Uh, I could spend the rest of my life just translating Galen right? Mm. Uh, th those 22 volumes of the Kuhn edition. I could spend the next 60 years if I live to 100, just, just translating that, uh, let alone all the other evidence out there. I, I did not spend as much time as I wanted to in the Vatican secret archives or the archive of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which I read about in, in the last chapter. Uh, I didn't spend enough time in the Louvre examining what was in their hidden collections. I didn't spend enough time at Eleusis. Uh, and when I finished this whole thing, I think I read about it in the afterward, I could immediately, and right here, name you a dozen archaeological sites that I want to visit and that I'm talking about with Andrew Coe, for example. Sites mm. in North Africa and Greece and Turkey uh, and uh, other places I won't mention. Uh, but there, the, you know, the ancient Mediterranean is ripe with all this evidence, and I don't see how we can say anything definitive, really, about the ancient Greeks or early Christianity 
without understanding their their pharmacology uh, and mm. to and to understand that that cuisine and diet and pharmacology weren't necessarily separate in the ancient world. So how can we speak about either their daily life on the one hand or their sacramental life on the other without digging into these resources, in some cases, quite literally? I mean, there are dozens of archaeological sites that I want to visit, archaeologists I want to talk to, um, chemistry that has to be done, uh, and there's no center to do this. You know, Andrew Coe is, uh, you know, he has this small team at Open Archem uh, investigating this stuff and colleagues around the world. But, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to get a PhD in, in the hunt mm. for ancient pharmacology and medicine. Uh, and so part of the reason for writing this book and kind of where I found myself towards the end of it is yet we have absolutely just scratched the surface. Th th this needs to be, um, you know, a, a part of, of university discipline. Mm. Yeah, and and it's such a such an amazing journey. I feel like you're kind of on uh, the same journey as what what's what's that that move me uh, that movie where I think it's John Cage goes on this rampage through America to save the Constitution. <laughs> it's like I don't even know if I'm saying the right actor there, but um, American Treasure. That's it. I feel like you're on that kind of journey, Nicholas right? Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage, man. Nick, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I only just recently saw it. My wife made me watch it, but, but um, you know, you're on this crazy journey trying to bring something very important back uh, from history that we've completely lost. Um, and I want to encourage everybody not only to, to read the book or listen to the book, um, but also if you want, uh, you know, a more broad interview talking about the specific concoctions and stuff, go listen to Joe Rogan's interview. Cause I don't want to dive into all of that stuff today, but, but I do want you to, cause I guess the listeners are probably at this stage wondering what are these experiences that they had? Like, tell me about say the road to Eleusis, Eleusis, um, and what that was and what they would experience there. These philosophers and high people in government. Right. So Eleusis, I, I call it the, uh, the spiritual capital of the ancient world. Like we mentioned, it runs from about 1500, to the fourth century AD, so almost 2,000 years. That is to say, as long as Christianity itself has been around. Now, obviously, mm. we have no idea or very little idea what the very archaic rites looked like in the Mycenaean period. Uh, by, by the classical times, however, we are getting this little testimony. So I mentioned Plato, for example, and Cicero and Marcus Aurelius. Fairly universally, you hear folks talking about a vision. Uh, and, you know, from the hymn to Demeter, uh, which is this uh, 496 line poem that survived from antiquity, 7th century BC, more or less. Uh, we have, it's kind of the foundation myth of what was happening there. You know, why is Eleusis Eleusis? Uh, so Eleusis is where it is, 13 miles northwest of Athens, up the sacred road, uh, because that's where Demeter rests her weary bones after she's uh, searching for her daughter Persephone. Persephone is out gathering wildflowers one day. She bends down to pick up a hundred-headed Narcissus flower. Uh, interestingly enough, cognate with narcotics, Narcissus, narcotics. Mm. That, that's one of these classic Carl Ruck references. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, she, the, the earth opens up and out comes Hades. He abducts her to the underworld. And this is, you know, for a long time, it was just seen as this seasonal myth uh, for, uh, for winter and spring and how the flowers return to the earth when Persephone resurrects and so on and so forth. Uh, and in this hymn to Demeter, uh, Demeter is uh, referred to as landing at Eleusis and she's taken care of 
by the king and queen there, and she asked for a temple to be set up in her honor. And she hasn't eaten anything in nine days and nights, so they offer her a glass of wine. And she says, no, no, thank you. I'm, I'm the lady of the grain. I'm, I'm Demeter. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Mother Earth. And what she asks for, and this is where the whole adventure begins, is this potion, the kukion, which in Greek just means a mixed potion. And again, we don't know what it was. We don't know how it may have changed over the years, but she lists out these ingredients, uh, alfi, barley, uh, hudor, water, and blechon, mint. So when you look at some kind of barley, water, mint beverage, and I talked to a beer scientist in Germany about this, uh, you can reasonably speculate that there's some kind of rudimentary beer happening here. Uh, and this is kind of what's talked about in that 1978 book, The Road to Eleusis. Now, we don't know... You know, when, at which point, and why in the mysteries this thing was drunk, but we do find lots and lots of drinking vessels. And if you go to the museum in Eleusis, you'll see lots of drinking vessels. And they've excavated these things since the 19th century. Unfortunately, they've never been tested, so we don't know what was in those vessels. And they've all been treated for conservation, so there isn't much actionable information at Eleusis itself. But again, we do know that this pilgrimage was made from Athens all the way to Eleusis, the potion is somehow involved and it results in this vision. That was, that was the big initiation when you became an epoptes. That's like, you know, the, the real hardcore initiate. You would visit Eleusis once as a, as a mustes, a mystic, and you'd come back the next year in September to become an epoptes. And it only happened once in your life. Uh, mm. So when you talk about this experience, you're talking about a once in a lifetime visionary experience that again, what little clues we have speak to the obliteration of the fear of death and essentially apotheosis, becoming divine, becoming immortal. You went there as, as a human being and you left divine. You left guaranteed of the afterlife, uh, which is pretty extraordinary. So all your Stoics, uh, much as they were grounded in reason and logic, uh, they went to Eleusis to become gods. Mm. Yeah, it, it's it's absolutely mind-boggling to think of the uh, the people who would have made that same journey, and and you know something that you said there is such a perfect segue into my next question because this I, I mean I have it tattooed onto my arm, memento mori. The Stoics were obsessed with death, <laughs> you know that this idea, remember death, remember death, remember death, and you know it wasn't just a philosophy; it was a practice of of really. Uh, making sure that you are prepared for that moment when you're like, like Seneca said, one of my favorite practical quotes that he said, he said, before you die, make sure that your faults die, you know, make sure that on your dying your day that your faults die before you do. And they had this, this, I, I mean, you look at Seneca who was, you know, who, who was forced to commit suicide, you know, I, I believe he cut himself in a bath, you know, with his supporters around him. Uh, fearless in the face of death. It was more about uh, the courage that you face death with. You know, it wasn't the way that you died. It was it was the 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 internal world that you were living in when you were dying. So, how linked to these sorts of experiences is this stoic mantra of a memento mori and remember death and you know uh, have this on your mind constantly? I think it's part of the answer. And, and I think it's an invitation to the answer. If, if I was going to tattoo something right here, it would say, an pethanis, prin pethanis, denta pethanis, o tan pethanis, 
which is on the very first page of my book. I tell you the key to immortality on the very first page. Open it up, read that, close it, you're done. You need to know nothing else about the ancient past. Uh, in English, that means if you die before you die, you won't die when you die. And that is inscribed on a plaque at the St. Paul's Monastery on Mount Athos in Greece, the holy mountain, right? The oldest historic mm -hmm. conclave of monasteries uh, in the Greek Orthodox Church. I think it represents a legacy from ancient Greece. And nobody writes or speaks about this more eloquently than Peter Kingsley, who changed my life. And I'm going to send this to Peter so he knows how much I appreciate him. He has a new book out, Reality, which came out many years ago and has been reissued. He writes all about this uh, in, in such elegant terms. Uh, so before the Stoics, uh, he writes a lot about the pre-Socratics. Mm. Uh, so in, in addition to all the philosophers that you're interested in, uh, between the pre-Socratics and the Stoics, you have Plato, who I see as, as kind of the interface. What does he say about philosophy? You talk about it as this, uh, you know, this, this exercise, right? This memento mori, mm. uh, keeping death on your mind. Uh, Plato says that those who engage with philosophy in the right way practice nothing else but dying and being dead. That's from the Phaedo. Uh, where does he get this idea? Uh, it comes from his guru, Parmenides who was born in 515 BC in Southern Italy. Uh, this is the Eleatic school, Parmenides. And Parmenides has an influence on Empedocles in Sicily. And before both of them, you have Pythagoras, right? These are some of the guiding lights of Western civilization. And this is outside Athens. So again, I talked about Eleusis uh, being the most uh, exceptional and divine thing that Athens ever produced, uh, according to Cicero. In addition to democracy and the arts and sciences and everything that came from Athens, the way the Greeks inflamed the imagination of the West came from Pythagoras, Parmenides, and Empedocles. Uh, mm. And it's these pre-Socratics who are obsessed with death. There's no other way to put it. They're obsessed with death and they're obsessed with dying now and going into the underworld to meet a goddess. So the mysteries at Eleusis and the Dionysian mysteries and all the wine that I talk about is that that's one aspect of it. The much, much more important baseline aspect of it are these irrational exercises uh, that were engaged in by Pythagoras, who built a chamber in his basement to lie down motionless in this practice of incubation. Parmenides, who did the same thing, and Empedocles, who knew how to navigate the underworld. These were Greek shamans. The, the, these were Greek technicians of the underworld. Uh, and it's a tradition that has largely been lost. And we don't talk about it because we get swept away by Plato and everything else. Uh, but this is really where the Greek lineage begins. And so these mm -hmm. guys are in Italy. Uh, their influence is from the Eastern Aegean, Ionia, right? Uh, so th these are guys from Phocaia, an example, uh, in, as in Parmenides' case, for example. He's from north of Ephesus, Phocaia, Pythagoras from Samos. They take all these ideas from the Eastern Aegean, they go to Italy, and they, and they release these seeds. And it produces Plato and everything else that comes afterwards. But these guys were obsessed with navigating the underworld in, let's be clear, that means nothing in the 21st century. So call it the subconscious or mm. call it the, 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 um, the nebulous regions of your soul uh, or call it a deeply meditative trance. Peter Kingsley mm. refers to it as a cataleptic state of trance. Uh, you lay down in the dark and you die for a couple of days if need be. 
And when you arise, you are no longer a human being. You have conquered the underworld. And so that's why I said at the very beginning, drugs are just a very, very small part of this magical, mystical enterprise. Uh, the more fascinating aspect for me is this pre-Socratic landscape and what the ancient Greeks were actually teaching. Mm. Yeah, you know, that, that's been one of the most fascinating aspects of this year for me, uh, really diving deep into this stuff has been looking at some of the pre-Socratic uh, teachers and thinking there is just an, a, a, such an abundance of people in the West now turning to things like Buddhism, going to Hinduism, you know, looking at the Eastern traditions, Taoism, because though their main texts are so clearly mystic and they offer these really uh, deep dives into your soul. But something somebody, uh, one of my other guests, uh, Dirk Marling said to me, uh, he, he said, we have this all in Western culture as well. It's all there. And then I started reading Heraclitus, for example, and just the, the masterpiece that his fragments are just talking about the cosmos. And, and then you think, hang on, Stoicism, they offer some pretty radical ideas about what we're living in right here. You know, this one universal, well-ordered whole, the cosmos, you know, we are all undoubtedly interconnected. We have reason, which is our spark of the divine whole, you know, all of these very kind of mystical ideas. And, and you're right, it's all there in these pre-Socratics uh, who just talked in such beautiful poetic ways about what all of this is and what we are. And something that I wanted to bring up because I, I'm guessing that a lot of my listeners will be thinking he has to bring this story up because even the founder of Stoicism is implicated in all of this sort of stuff. Because one of the great tales told by Zeno of Sidium is that when he uh, first arrived in Athens and crashed his ship and everything, he was wondering what to do. So he went to see the Oracle of Delphi and the Oracle of Delphi told him, uh, you know, you should dye your, dye your soul with the colors of dead men or something like that. Essentially go read the, the ancients, which led him on this giant path to finding this philosophy. Um, but tell me a bit more about the Oracle of Delphi or Delphi um, and, and the sorts of experiences that this, this Oracle was giving to people. Yeah, I mean, again, yet more irrational experiences, right? These are yeah. the logical, rational Greeks, and all we're doing are talking about irrational experiences that if you went into the halls of power in Washington, D.C. today and started talking about, they, they'd label you crazy. And on CNN over the weekend, I felt a little crazy talking about Eleusis. And yet here we are having this conversation, and I'm, again, fully indebted to Peter Kingsley for resurrecting this tradition for me, because I didn't really study the pre-Socratics until after college, uh, in, into my 20s and 30s. It's, uh, it was a, a real light in my life to find that again. And then all these correspondences with the Stoics, whom you love, and the shamanic techniques that I was you know, reading about. Uh, and it's, it's just this incredible stuff. And there's Delphi, yet another indication of what Karl Ruck would say, the irrational wellsprings of human consciousness. The Greeks were obsessed not just with the mysteries, not just with incubation, as Kingsley writes about, but, but prophecy and oracle. And why is that? Uh, you know, the, 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 was it the state constitution of, 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 uh, of Sparta was approved by an oracle. Why was that? Why would they take, why would they mix, you know, uh, a state and religion like that? Um, because the oracle was an important part of their world. 
uh, uh, it was a woman, obviously, the Pythia. Mm. It was always women, Pythia. Women, uh, older women, usually over the age of 50, were told by the ancient sources. Uh, and there she sits um, over this crevice. And again, for the longest time, we don't know uh, what she was under the influence of, but there are clues that she was under the influence of something. And so some of the ancient sources talk about uh, smoldering henbane seeds, right? Uh, which uh, the later pharmacologists call pythonion, as in Apollo, uh, pythonion Apollo, mm. uh, kind of cementing the connection there between henbane uh, on, the, on the one hand and, and the pythia on, on the other. Uh, so that's a possibility. Um, uh, there's another possibility that a, a trio, was it a trio or an interdisciplinary group uh, a couple years ago came out with this idea that it was a, a gas, a subterranean gas, that ethylene was being released from this bituminous limestone and that was causing uh, the, the oracular visions of the Pythia. Uh, we still don't know uh, definitively, but there are lots of great leads to you know, this, these techniques that were cultivated by the Greeks, whether through drugs or some kind of noxious gas or some kind of trance-inducing meditation or a combination of all three and something else we haven't even thought about. Uh, but the point is the, these irrational states of consciousness, these altered states of consciousness were prized by the ancient mm -hmm. Greeks. And whatever escaped the Pythia's mouth was taken damn seriously. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing to think of all of the people who we find links to. But one thing I am surprised by is, you know, if all of this was happening, it, it seems like either nobody was directly saying it <laughs> or there was obviously a massive attempt to get rid of all of this information uh, in, by, by, um, by the leaders of Rome, which you obviously go into your, into your book um, and Catholicism and everything like that. But why don't we have like at least one, I mean, we probably do, but like one philosopher just saying, this is exactly what happened. We went to this place. Uh, I went through this experience. This is what I took away from it. And this is the whole thing that I'm doing here with my philosophy. Like wh wh where are those, where are those sorts of lines? I'm, I'm so interested why we can't, uh, why we don't have that blatant a a an admission. Because th then I wouldn't have a job. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't <laughs> be fun. There'd be no adventure, man. There's, there's no history. Uh, yeah. You know, the, uh, it's, it's rarely that, that easy. All we have are, 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 are bits and clues. And, mm. and it's, not, it's not just with respect to these traditions. It's, it's, that's the classical world generally. I cite um, a reference in my book to the concept that about 1% of the ancient literature has survived. And that, that's from a fairly mainstream source. Uh, I, I sat down with the minister of antiquities herself at her office in Athens and had this very discussion uh, I think it's in chapter three of my book, uh, where we talk about the, the missing literature. Uh, we, you know, we don't know much. You know, everything we know, I say, it's like it's just a few pieces of this million piece jigsaw puzzle. And yet classicists spend an entire lifetime uh, on this 1% on this of what survived. Uh, so even when it comes to very mainstream things, we're just, we're, we're, we're missing a lot. We're missing a lot of, of plays, for example. You know, only, only a fraction of what Euripides and Aristophanes and, and Sophocles produced. And, and, and the rest uh, just disappeared. Now, we can't blame the Christians for all of it. Uh, you know, time has a way of disappearing these things. Uh, and I think that that's, that's a big part of it. Um, but the, the, the simple truth is that we, we just don't know. When we look back in the past, 
uh, we're, we're looking at uh, just, just a fragment of, of what was there. And so I, I would love to find the smoking gun about what was happening in these mysteries, which is why you spend 12 years looking for as many clues as you can. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm so glad that you have. And, um, you know, something that uh, you've alluded to uh, in this discussion as well is that, and also into the book, which I'm so glad that you did, uh, was you pointed out that reason, uh, rationality that we think of today was not exactly the same thing that they were talking about back then. Uh, knowledge was not the same thing that we talk about today as it was back then. Uh, and you talk about uh, Gnosticism, which uh, I, I always thought was uh, specifically linked to um, a sect of, of Christians uh, who, who read the Bible in a certain way. Um, and, and then in the book, you pointed out that this was the way that they thought about knowledge in so many cases, uh, gnosis, gnosis or gnosis, um, which as you pointed out is a deep knowledge of your own self as a knowledge of God. Can you talk more about the way that they saw philosophy and knowledge and actually knowing something back then um, in terms of the, the Greek and Roman philosophers? Yeah, this, this is why I say it's, okay, I'll use the word. I think it's impossible. I was going to say challenging or difficult. I, th I think it's impossible to understand the birth of Christianity and early Christianity as practiced by the first Christians without understanding the Greek world into which it was born, where mm. there were different kinds of knowledge and different ways of arriving at revelation and different ways of contemplating salvation. So Aristotle, for example, to, to, to briefly mention Eleusis, he, he said the initiates went there not to learn something, mathain, but to experience something, pathain, to suffer, to experience, to go through. Uh, so that's, it's, it's already you're getting a, a unique kind of uh, look at what the, the kind of knowledge that was prized, right? The experience over the discursive, intellectualized, rationalized book learning. Uh, and that gets, that gets us into gnosis, gnosis, to know at a deep intuitive level. Uh, I, I could have quoted many people in the book, but I quoted Elaine Pagels, who is a genius uh, at Princeton, early Christian scholar at Princeton, who had, I've had the pleasure to speak with. And she wrote um, a fabulous translation of the Gospel of Thomas. She wrote a very famous book called The Gnostic Gospels. And I just love her definition of, of Gnosticism. And uh, about Gnosticism, she says that to, to, to know the self, at the most profound level is to know the divine. It's, it's, it's this place where the self and the divine are identical. And you mentioned that beautiful phrase, the spark of the divine. Now that, that's a concept that you find in Jewish mysticism, Christian mysticism, Islamic mysticism, uh, th this concept that the God, and you talked about God a lot too, the, the, the God that we profess to be the God that is outside, the God that is external to us is in Gnosticism, uh, identical to the spark of the divine, the God that, that is within, which has very much to do with this concept of dying before dying and how to access that God. Uh, it's not through reason, logic, and book learning. The way to access that spark of the divine, which is always there, according to the Gnostics and other ancient Greek mystics, is to die to this false conception of the self, this ego that we spend a lifetime building up for very good reason, because you have to pay your taxes and drive a car and, and take your kids to soccer practice. And it's all very important. You can't be a very productive member of society without it. However, um, 
you know, we were born into this world without egos, or at least not, not the egos we have today. Uh, and it's a very different kind of existence. And so the momentary dissolution or the melting away of that ego seems to be the key. And so here's our immortality key, uh, mm -hmm. which is not drugs, which is not drugs. The immortality key is, is, is that ability to dissolve the self, to annihilate the self momentarily in order to experience that more fundamental aspect of consciousness, which is to say the consciousness of the planet, which is to say the consciousness of God. We don't have a very good term for that. We call it God, but it's essentially this, this universal aspect of consciousness that resides right there. Uh, inside mm. every man, woman, and child. Uh, and I think that the, the, the key there is that in these experiences, um, that sense of discovery is visceral. It's mm. really visceral. It seems, it's often described um, in, the, in the psilocybin experiments, for example, as the realest thing these volunteers have ever experienced. It's the thing you can't forget. Uh, you know, two thirds in the very early studies in 2007, we're referring to that experience as one of the most meaningful of their entire lives. And in fact, the statistic today, and I've, I've asked Roland Griffiths at Hopkins about this, it's now 75%. So over the past 20 years and 50 peer-reviewed uh, articles in the psychological literature, uh, it's now 75% of volunteers will describe their one and only experience with psilocybin as among the most meaningful in their lives. And we think it's because of this experience. It's this, it, it sears itself into your memory. It's unforgettable. And it radically transforms the way you see yourself in the world. And when I hear stats like that, uh, maybe like you, I think of the Gnostics, I think of the ancient Greeks, and I think mm. of these experiences that were available to people 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, maybe 20,000 years ago, maybe 200,000 years ago. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, it does make a lot of sense to me, this stuff that you're saying, because, you know, you start to draw these links between certain quotes from, from the Stoics or the philosophers. And, you know, you look at something that Marcus Aurelius said, which, you know, he said, throw away your books, right? <laughs> which is a massive statement for one of the most highly educated, uh, you know, men in history, uh, for somebody who is this, um, this beautiful writer talks about the soul talks about, uh, you, you know, just what is knowledge? What is it to be? And, and you think, wow, you're telling me to throw away my books. Okay. There's some sort of knowledge that he's after that is not to be found in constant addiction to reading and content and listening and all that sort of stuff. And then you look at some, you know, my favorite philosopher is Seneca. I think, I think he wrote beautifully about this sort of stuff. And some of the things that he says, you know, he says, God is in you. He is around you. He is did these ideas that you think, wow, you know, Christianity definitely drew upon some of these ideas, which um, is perhaps why the, you know, early popes found Seneca to be one of, you know, their early saints sort of thing. But you know, this, this sort of stuff is so interesting because it can really give you a better idea of what the ancient philosophers were trying to get at. And maybe we do have an addiction to, um, I, I don't know, just filling our minds with information as opposed to starting with a true knowledge of ourself, you know, of, of what we are and who we are. Um, but I, I guess this is this is also a good um, link because you talked about the the spark of divinity. You also talk in your book about 
these shamans who as a way of initiation would go out and have these experiences in order to, I believe the words used to find the fire burning in their soul. Mm -hmm. And that made me think of another link, um, which is that the Stoics talk about this substance called pneuma, uh, which I'm sure you've, uh, you've, you've read about. And um, this fiery substance that pervades all, you know, this, this thing that holds everything together. Have you come across this word? And, and if so, what, what do you, what does it mean to you? What, what is this idea? Yeah. You're referring to pneuma? Pneuma. That's it. Yes. <laughs> right. I've, right. I've so, heard it said in different ways. I'm, I'm picking a side. <laughs> <laughs> so pneuma. Uh, so literally breath or spirit. Uh, mm. Think, uh, think the Holy spirit. Uh, mm. The Christians would, would call this the Holy Spirit. And, you know, in 13 years of Catholic school, I never really understood the concept of the Holy Spirit. I never understood the Trinity in general. It's, re it's really difficult stuff. You talk about the, the, this one God uh, somehow being divided into the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Uh, uh, and I never understood it until I started reading Greek literature, <laughs> uh, mm. li like you maybe. And when I read through that, Pneuma does make a lot more sense to me. Um, and it's, it's this, this sense that um, it interpenetrates uh, the fabric of reality. Uh, and maybe a better word we might use today is something like consciousness. Um, and then we can talk about consciousness maybe as the foundation of the physical universe. This is an interesting, uh, an interesting aspect in, in theoretical physics to begin exploring, mm -hmm. uh, but at the base of it all um, is, is consciousness, which I find fascinating. Uh, so I, I think that, that is, the, is the aim, and, and that was the philosophical direction toward which uh, the Greeks seem to be oriented, or at least some of the schools that, that, that we're talking about. And again, I think it does find its way into early Christianity. Where else do, do, do you explain this concept of, of the spirit, right, uh, the, the Holy Spirit? Um, and the tongues of fire. You mentioned the word fire too, right? Mm. I think of the Pent I think of the Pentecost, uh, which for those who don't know was the, was that when the, when the Spirit descended uh, after Jesus's death. Uh, you know, there are all these really interesting parallels um, in in that in that period from the the transition from the Greek world to the Paleo Christian world, uh, which was largely one and the same. It was one and the same for centuries. You know, I, I like to say that we didn't uh, go to bed as, as pagans in 33 AD and wake up as Christians in 34 AD. Uh, this was an intercultural process that lasted for a long time. And when in doubt, look to Greek philosophy and, and look to why Paul was writing the way he was to these early Christian communities in Corinth um, and Thessaloniki, today's Thessaloniki, or Philippi, or to, to the Galatians or Colossians. Th th these were folks who would have been um, steeped in Greek philosophical thought and, and, and including some of their mystery traditions that we're talking about. Mm, yeah. And, and this might be a good segue as well, because I've been talking to a lot of theologians, you know, I've been talking to a lot of people, uh, you know, discussing the philosophy of Jesus, for example. Um, and it'd be a mistake if we didn't spend a little bit of time talking about the links between Dionysus and, 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 and Jesus and, and the mythology of ancient Greece mixed with uh, early Christianity. So uh, could you talk to me about, I mean, firstly, for the listeners at home, uh, who is Dionysus, it might be Dionysus that I'm getting wrong here, but, um, and, and, and also, the direct links between the, that story and the story of Jesus Christ. Okay. So let, let's start by 
the son of God who was born of a virgin and introduced wine into his mysteries. Who do you think of? Uh, I think of, of Dionysus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think of Dion the son of God. The first line, not like the middle, the first line of the Bacchae. Euripides the Bacchae. Dionysus is Pais Dios, the son of God. And he's uh, often credited as born of a virgin, Semele, in one of the versions of his, of his origin myths. Uh, because she tries to give birth to him, but, but Zeus uh, incinerates her because she can't handle the full, the full force of his godhood. And Dionysus is, is then born from the thigh of Zeus, one of these myths that, that, that goes around. So he's part human, Semele, part divine from Zeus. Uh, he's the son of God, uh, born of that virgin, uh, who is synonymous with, with the vine, with the ampelos, just like Jesus, who calls himself the true vine in John's gospel, and only in John's gospel. And it's only in John's gospel that you see the wedding feast at Cana, uh, which is interesting. Scholars refer to it as the signature miracle of Dionysus. So in, in Elis, the district of Elis on the Western Peloponnese in Greece, there was this long tradition about these water basins that would be left in the temple on the appointed hour at the appointed date, and uh, the priest would leave them there, come back in the morning, and the water would be miraculously transformed to wine. And we know on the island of Andros, around the same time, the Epiphany, January 5th, 6th, uh, water would flow from the temple and turn to wine. And so when you hear at the wedding feast of Cana, this famous water to wine miracle, what is John saying to his audience about this new son of God who also has wine in his mysteries and can magically convert the water to that sacramental wine? He's, he's not saying, it's not just made up out of whole cloth, which is a question I, I've been getting. And when I had this conversation with a Catholic priest uh, in, in the course of my research during the book, you know, he's very quick to point out, it doesn't mean that Jesus never existed. It doesn't mean this is all being just cobbled together. It means that uh, there was a version of Jesus that John specifically wanted to introduce to his audience. And it was this, uh, it was a Dionysian Jesus. Uh, in fact, there, 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 there's a book that I, I quote a lot, uh, a lot throughout my book uh, by Dennis McDonald called The Dionysian Gospel. And it's looking at all these correspondences between the Greek of John's Gospel and the Greek of Euripides the Bacchae and other Greek sources to really show all these correspondences and which that, that kind of undergirds the overall argument, again, that the roots of the early church are Greek. Paul is writing in Greek to Greek speakers. John wrote in Greek to Greek speakers in Ephesus, the Greco-Ephesians. Now, isn't it interesting that in the early second century, St. Ignatius of Antioch is also writing to these Greco-Ephesians in Greek, and he refers to the Eucharist as the pharmakon athanasias, the drug of immortality. And it's the same word that Euripides used five centuries earlier. He called wine a pharmakon, like pharmacy, mm. which of course means a medicine or treatment or remedy, but it also means drug. Some people say yeah. they go to the pharmacy. Some people say they go to the drugstore. We still have the issue today, but at its root, pharmacon does mean drug. And isn't it weird that an early church father would refer to the Eucharist as the drug of immortality? Now, it's all just fancy wordplay, and I get it. But, you know, th these ideas have been out there uh, for 42 years and a lot longer than that. Uh, but, you know, I use some of these um, uh, biblical exegesis, uh, I use some of that just to kind of set the stage for the scientific investigation that I was doing. And, and just to show the basic proposition 
again, that the, the roots of the church are Greek. And if you want to convert people, uh, you, ought to, you ought to speak on their terms. And the terms they understood was this magical wine of Dionysus. And there are lots of parallels there. And it's not new and it's not controversial. The parallels in and of themselves, I'm saying. Uh, mm. I, I often quote this paper from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1950, The Influence of the Mystery Religions on Christianity, which everybody can and should Google and you can read it. It's not a long read. Uh, the point being, this whole idea of the pagan continuity hypothesis has been out there for a very long time. Uh, and I think the, the, the real question is not whether there were these correspondences, but why they're there and how certain authors like John use them to his or her advantage. Uh, we don't know who the author was uh, mm. to, to, to speak to, to these early communities of Christians uh, and to present them with the kind of wine God who they would have understood and tried to assimilate into practices that were ancestral to them that went back centuries. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievably fascinating looking at, I think that you pointed out something so important there. The fact that it, Christianity didn't just pop out of nowhere. You know, there, there are links that spread, you know, all over ancient, ancient Rome and ancient Greece uh, that, that, you know, it was a very, uh, I, I get it. It was a synchronistic sort of process, right? Just taking a lot of really good ideas, I guess, from other places. And, and then you also go into your book about the whole, you know, I guess the, um, the process after then of, of, I guess you might say the battle between Rome and the church and stuff like that. Really interesting stuff. But I guess um, one, one final thing that I, I, I really want to dive into before I ask some questions about how it relates to today um, is a lot of these experiences uh, were initiated by women and the mm-hmm. early Christian church uh, was, uh, you know, predominantly a women led, uh, I guess, early cult which is so interesting. Um, and and I, I want you to talk a little bit about that as well, just so that um, the listeners have a good understanding of, of, of those sorts of origins. Yeah, I've, I've, I've gotten this question a couple of times, which, which I'm happy about because I, I didn't mm. set out to write the, the, the book to explore that, mm. but it's the thing that just hits you in the face again yeah. and again and again, uh, going way back, not just the paleo Christianity, but in, into prehistory. The more and more I talked with these, with these beer scientists, for example, uh, in Germany, uh, or Pat McGovern at the University of Pennsylvania here in the States, uh, the more and more they, they would refer to, to brewing as a, as a women's art, uh, potentially going back to the Stone Age, uh, including among the Egyptians and Sumerians much later, uh, including the beginnings of the mysteries of Eleusis, which at the very, at the very beginning were women's rites of initiation, not open to men. Uh, same with uh, the wine mysteries of Dionysus. You know, his devotees were known as the Minads. They were, they were the female devotees of Dionysus, whose primary goal was this state of enthusiasmos, this ecstatic communion with the God. But it was the women who mixed the wine. It was the women who brewed the beer. Uh, and that doesn't really change until the industrialization of brewing uh, during the Reformation, really. Uh, but up until that point, it's women mixing these beverages. And if you, even if you spelunk into the catacombs under Rome, you will see frescoes like I did of women mixing wine in this part Roman, uh, you know, part Christian uh, syncretic mixed ritual, uh, which in some ways was the refrigerium, 
uh, as the Yale scholar Ramsey McMullen refers to it, this feast with the dead. Uh, but on the other hand, could have been this kind of Eucharistic visual, uh, this, uh, this, this kind of proto-mass even. Uh, we don't know much of the details, but we do know there are women there mixing wine. Uh, and there's even little Latin phrases in some of these catacombs. It's really interesting. So you don't have to hypothesize too much, like in the catacombs of Saints uh, Marcellinus and Pietro, which I visit in the book, you'll see in Latin phrases like agape miskemi, like mix it up for me, agape, which is a Greek word that means love. Mm. Uh, or irene miskemi, like mix it up for me, irene, another Greek word meaning peace. Uh, and it's right there, miske, mix it up for me. So the women are in control of this funerary banquet, uh, which is part pagan, part Christian, because we're, we're talking, mm. uh, you know, third, fourth centuries AD. Christianity has had time to develop by then. And yet we find women leading these Eucharistic uh, vigils, which is really, really interesting. And even aside from that, if you look at Paul's letters, you do find lots of women. I mean, the first European convert to Christianity was a woman, Lydia. Uh, and you find lots of women referenced uh, in Paul's letters, like Junia, whom he refers to as the foremost amongst the apostles. Let's not forget about Mary Magdalene, who, as I say in the book, for a time was the church. It was her and nobody else as the first witness to the resurrection, especially mm. as described in John's gospel. It, it was she who communicates her, her sighting of the resurrected Jesus to the apostles, who have a hard time believing it, by the way. Uh, so there, there's all these interesting traditions that, that, that you can look to about the role of women in, in these early mysteries. And I spend a good part of the book talking about it, which raises profound questions, I think about the nature of the priesthood today and the role uh, of women in general. Mm. Yeah, you know, it, it really does. And, and, and I think that personally, I have found that understanding this sort of stuff or at least diving deeper into this sort of stuff has not pushed me away from wanting to know about, say, Christianity, but it's actually drawn me in. It's drawn me in and said, hey, look at how fascinating this religion is that, you know, it used to be completely radical and, you know, it, it was a massive battle against the state saying, no, we want to take these, this stuff and we want to give it to the people. But then the state took control, you know, and then it's like, okay, well, none of that. Okay. And then you have the, the placebo, but, but I, I really think for people who are listening to this, who, who have a faith or have a religion, um, you know, this sort of stuff should should encourage you to go even deeper into your your study and and, and practice to figure out the the real roots. Because I think it'd be easy for people to sh either shut this information out uh, with willful blindness, or to just throw out their religion altogether and say, "Well, it's all a big lie." But it's so fascinating. It's so fascinating to go deeper. And I want to ask you. Um, what do you think that all this means for philosophers today, for theologians today, for religious leaders today, for government leaders today? You can see this wave coming where it's going to be here in a matter of time, no matter what, just like marijuana was going to be here and now it is coming in. Um, so what do you think that that means for intellectuals and government leaders and theologians today? That this is something we ought to be talking about and preparing for. Uh, like you mentioned, I would, I would rather talk about it and spend 10 years educating at least what little I know about these traditions to show the continuity 
from the past to the present and what it's going to mean for the future of religion and the future of medicine and the future of how we organize our society. Because I do think that the psychedelic experience in particular is going to become widely available uh, outside mm. even a therapeutic context. So again, I do think that within the next five years, you're gonna see the FDA in the US get involved in the psilocybin studies in the clinical setting. And I think you will see it's approved use for certain clinical applications like anxiety, depression, end of life distress, uh, maybe alcoholism, maybe uh, um, smoking cessation, and a host of other things that are about to be investigated. I keep talking about not that, but 10 years in the future. And in that respect, I'm only expressing my own opinion. Mm. This has nothing to do with the clinical research. But I think after that, that clinical application, uh, the obvious question is going to arise what becomes of this stuff? Uh, you know, how do we legalize psilocybin in particular? Um, and, and how do we make it available for people in, in, a, safe, in a safe setting? Uh, which is why I constantly look to these regulated licensed facilities with trained personnel under strictly controlled conditions. And the thing that fascinates me and where I think there are lessons to be learned from the ancient mysteries, which I think there are very practical lessons to be learned, I would envision uh, an otherwise healthy adult having access to one of these retreat centers at least once and maybe only once, maybe only once in their adult lives. After mm. a couple of years of intense psychological and emotional preparation, the kind of things you saw at Eleusis, right? Where you made the visit once, came back the next year before your full initiation into the epoptes. I can envision a couple of years preparing for this experience uh, I could also envision a couple of years afterwards integrating that experience properly and, and memorializing it and, and sacralizing it so that it's never forgotten. Now, the literature suggests that it won't be forgotten. And these are this kind of indelible experiences. But I think that there, that there are ways uh, to prepare people for that and to create these sacred containers uh, where, you know, one person's therapy is another person's religion, <laughs> right? Mm. Uh, I can envision psychedelic chaplaincy. I can envision if you are a Christian, you know, or a Jew or a Muslim, and you hold on tight to your faith, hold it tighter. You know, use this to hold your faith tighter. Whether you're spiritual but not religious, or deeply religious in an organized faith, or somewhere in between, or don't even think about this stuff, this experience with psilocybin 10 years from now, for example, could be the thing that empowers your faith or lack of faith, or that, or that introduces you to one of these ecstatic visions uh, that are spoken of in antiquity in the safest, most practical, most comfortable setting possible. Uh, that, that's what really excites me. It's part of the reason I haven't done psychedelics is because those centers don't exist because mm. we're just at the beginning of this conversation, right? Uh, uh, but over the next 10 years, things are going to change and, and change quickly. So I'd rather be prepared than not. Mm. You, you know, it sounds, it, it sounds like, you know, back in the sixties, there was kind of this outpouring, you know, everybody, the sixties and the seventies, everybody found this stuff and just went crazy. <laughs> like, we, we want it, you know, but we didn't have the internet back then. So it was a lot easier to push that away. Um, now that we have the internet, now that everybody's talking about this stuff, it sounds like what you're saying is we're about to have a really, a, a more highly educated and careful approach to these substances, uh, and allow it in, in such a way that, um, uh, we can still, I, I guess, 
everybody can be happy. <laughs> the government can, ha- you know, Caesar can have what is his as the, Bi- you know, as the Bible says, and, you know, and, and we can have what is ours as well. But, um, you know, Brian, thank you so much for writing the book. It's absolutely incredible. I'm going to have links in the show notes. I really want everybody to go out and check it out because if you're interested in philosophy, this is something that really ties a lot of things together. Um, so, uh, and religion as well. So thank you for writing it. Any last words to the audience or, or, or are you good? An petanis, prin petanis, denta patanis, otan petanis. If you die before you die, you will not die when you die. What does that mean? Let, let's have a quick 30 second mind blowing discussion. There is no afterlife. Do you know why there's no afterlife? Because there's no after. There's no before. Uh, to quote the great Ram Das, it's the here and now. So if you be here now, that is the key to immortality. This is what Dinah Bazer said to me, an atheist, by the way, an atheist before, during, and after her one and only experience with psilocybin. She talks about being bathed in God's love. That's from an atheist. She also told me, however, that this insight arose during her experience, that every moment is an eternity of its own, right? That the, the concept that eternity is here right now. Uh, there's a difference between eternity and everlasting. Uh, I don't think heaven is the place that you go to uh, for time, you know, extended into the cosmos forever and ever and ever, et secula seculorum, as they say in Latin. I don't think it's for the ages of ages. I think heaven is available here now. And I love the line from the Gospel of Thomas that the kingdom of heaven is spread upon the earth, but we do not see it. We do not see Mm. it, right? And this is a classic Greek thought. Uh, I'll quote Plotinus. I've quoted a couple people already, and I'm ruining my 30 seconds, but Plotinus, who says that... (laughs) Uh, he's one of these Neoplatonists, third century AD, and he follows in this secret doctrine tradition that could have been passed down from Pythagoras, Parmenides, and others. But by the time this Neo-Pythagorean, Neoplatonic thought gets to Plotinus in the third century AD, he talks about, we must, in his Enneads, he says, we, we must not look, right? But we must close our eyes and exchange our faculty of vision for another, Uh, And it's this faculty, he says, which everyone possesses, but so few people ever use. This concept of another sight. Um, I think by activating that faculty that we all have, but rarely use, that we can grab that key to immortality and open up the eternal present right here, right now. And I see these experiments uh, as an incredible vehicle to invite people into what you might call the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. Brian, thank you so much. That's a perfect way to end the interview. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to sign up for email updates, join my Patreon meetup groups that we hold weekly, or if you'd like to offer feedback or suggestions for future guests or topics on the show, then you can head to simonjedrew.com. There you'll also find information about how we can work one-on-one together with my alignment coaching based around the philosophical principles found in Stoicism. Finally, if you are on Facebook, then I'd love to see you in our group, The Practical Stoic Mastermind. But hey, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I'll talk to you next time.